And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups, about fifty each. And they did so, and he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, that, that in it, um, you reveal who you are to us. We, we get a glimpse of, of your son in this passage, of what he did when he was on the earth, of, of what he said to his disciples, of, of the miracles he worked, of, of the, the things that people thought and said about him, that we get to know more about who you are and what you've done for us, what you're doing for us and what you will do for us because you have given us your word. God, we also thank you that if, if we've trusted in Christ, you've given us your Holy Spirit, uh, the same Spirit that inspired Luke to write this passage that we just read uh, lives in us if we've trusted in Christ. And so we ask that uh, you would cause your Spirit in us to help us to understand your word together this morning, that, that the Spirit would convict us and encourage us and, and move us beyond ourselves uh, to, to transform us more into who you desire us to be. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you sent out your disciples. We thank you that you perplexed Herod uh, and that you fed the 5,000. We thank you that you went to the cross and died in our place and rose again, announcing your victory over sin and death and Satan. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, in our passage this morning, there's, there's three little sections that we just read. The first is Jesus sending out uh, the 12 apostles. He sends them out to do ministry. Uh, the second section is this kind of like weird little chunk where Herod is kind of confused about who Jesus is. And then the last section is the feeding of the 5,000. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to work through these together. Uh, in the very beginning, this first little section we see is Jesus sending out the 12 uh, apostles. And back 
Uh, earlier in Luke, he called these 12 guys to be his kind of special disciples, his apostles, and now he's sending them out. And this is, this is significant because this kind of marks a transition point in the gospel of Luke. Because up to this point, Jesus has been the one that's been preaching, and Jesus has been the one that's been teaching, and Jesus has been the one that's been doing miracles and healing people and casting out demons. He's been the one that's been doing all the work. But now he sends out his disciples to start doing some of what he has been doing. Because being a disciple is about learning from someone and then putting into practice the things that they're doing. So that's what these disciples have been doing. They've just been receiving from Jesus, but now they're going to begin to put these things into practice. So he calls them together, Luke tells us, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So the first thing Jesus does when he calls his disciples together to prepare them to send them out is he gives them power and authority. He empowers them to do the work that he's about to call them to do. He's not just going to send them out on their own to figure it out by themselves. He's not going to send them out unable to do what he's calling them to do. He empowers them to do what he's asking them to do. One thing that we need to see though is that this isn't like a permanent thing. You know, I think that we could see what happens here and think that, you know, now these 12 apostles have the ability to cast out demons and heal diseases and cure sicknesses whenever they want, as if they can just kind of walk around willy-nilly and healing everybody. Like, that's, that doesn't seem to be what's taking place. What seems like is that Jesus has specifically empowered them for this journey that they're about to go on. And the reason why we know that is because if you, if you skip down in chapter 9 to uh, verse 37, we read this. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, that's Jesus and his disciples, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Right? So Jesus empowers the disciples, sends them out on mission. Uh, It says, right, in in Luke 9, 1, he gave them power and authority over all demons. But then at the very, you know, end of Luke 9, they don't have authority over this demon. He temporarily empowers them for this mission, but they still have a lot to learn. There are still things that only Jesus can do that they can't do. He has the power and authority. And in this passage, he lends it to them for a short time so they can do what he's calling them to do. So the disciples still have growth. That doesn't mean that they've arrived. doesn't mean that they can do whatever they want now. They still need Jesus. He's temporarily empowering. And Luke verse 2 says, he sent them out. He sends them out to do two things. He sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And the second thing is he sends them out to heal. So they're to go out, they're to proclaim the kingdom of God, and they're to heal. The first part is, is maybe a little confusing, right? When we think about what we've been sent out to do by Jesus, uh, we think we're called to proclaim what? What are, we, what are we supposed to preach to people? What are we supposed to share with people? The gospel, right? The good news. But here he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And that kind of seems a little confusing at first. But if we skip down to verse 6, it says they departed. This is where Luke is telling us what they did. They departed and went through the villages proclaiming the gospel and healing everywhere. And so that Jesus tells the disciples, go out, proclaim the kingdom of God, and heal people. And then Luke tells us they come back and they say, we went everywhere and we preached the gospel and healed people. So clearly the disciples understand Jesus. When Jesus says, proclaim the kingdom of God, they hear him saying, preach the gospel. And the reason why that is is because in the gospels, the gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom. 
Because it's the good news about the kingdom of God. It's the good news that God's king has come into the world to bring his kingdom, to bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth. It's not just about us and our sins. That's, that's part of it, but it's bound up in this bigger idea that God has come in Christ to take back his creation, to take back his people for himself. He has brought the kingdom down, and through Christ, he's transferring us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what he's doing. That's the good news message that he sends the disciples out to preach. They're preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. They're also to heal. I don't think we should limit this just to there to heal sicknesses, right? Because Jesus gives them power over demons and power to cure diseases. So I think we should think of it bigger than just sickness. They're to heal diseases, but they're also to cast out demons. They're to make people well. Anybody that isn't how they should be, the disciples are given power to help fix that and make that right because that's part of the kingdom of God coming into the world. It's setting things right. Uh, This is like what uh, Luke told us at the beginning of chapter 8 when he said that Jesus went through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't just go out and preach about the kingdom of God. He also brought it. He demonstrated it through casting out demons, through uh, causing the blind to see and the lame to walk and the deaf to hear. He's bringing the kingdom of God. He's not just talking about it. He's doing it. When he sends out his disciples, they're not given some new commission. They're not given something different. They're told to go out and say the thing that Jesus has been saying to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to do the things that Jesus has been doing. They're to go out and heal people and cast out demons and do the kinds of things that give evidence of the arrival of God's kingdom in Christ. That's what they're sent out to do. And he tells them how they're to go. He says, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. So they're supposed to pack light, right? Don't take stuff with you. Now here, if you've read the other Gospels, there's, there's a little bit of a, a sticking point in that in Mark's Gospel, Jesus says that it's okay to take a staff. Here, he says, don't take a staff. And, and some people, you know, they want to just kind of drive a wedge in Scripture and say, oh, you know, Mark doesn't agree with Luke and there's this big, huge problem because in one place it says take a staff and one place it says don't take a staff. Um, I think that's a pretty short-sighted view because these disciples followed Jesus for three years. Don't you think it's possible that he sends them out to do ministry more than once? Right? And in fact, just a little bit later in Luke, he's going to send out the 72 at the beginning of chapter 10, and he doesn't tell them not to take a staff there. And so I think instead of saying that, oh, there's this you know, huge discrepancy where Jesus says one thing in one place and says another thing in another place, I think that what we should see is that Jesus sends out the disciples in a lot of different places and a lot of different times and a lot of different ways. And sometimes he says, take this stuff. Other times he says, take this stuff. He uh, gives them different stipulations on different missionary journeys for different purposes because he wants to teach them something else. The point, though, is not for us to kind of parse out this list and figure out what it means that they can't take an extra tunic and what it means that they can take a staff or not take a staff. Instead, we should see that he's telling them to to pack light, to not depend on their packing ability for the journey, but instead to depend on God and his provision, to trust that God is going to provide for them as they're out there doing this work that he has sent them out to do. Right? In verse 4, he tells them to depend on the hospitality of the people that they're sharing the gospel with. He says, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. They're not to, to take food because they're to depend on the hospitality of God's people as they share the gospel with them. 
But if people don't respond well, verse 5, he says, uh, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. This, this shaking the dust off the feet is something that Jews would do when they left Gentile territory, right? They've been in an unclean place. And so as they leave that unclean place, they get all the uncleanness off their sandals so that they can be, you know, clean again. I don't think that this is what Jesus is talking about here. I think what he's, he's saying is that when they leave a place that's rejected him, uh, they should kind of disassociate themselves with that place. They've done what he's called them to do. They've preached the gospel with those people. Those people have rejected it. And so now they can kind of wash their hands of those people. But I want to qualify that. Because I think we might see this and think, well, I share the gospel with my neighbor. And he rejected it. So, I'm done, right? I, I can check that guy off. Shake the dust off my feet, move on to somebody else. Share the gospel with the person at Walmart. They said, no, I'm out of that relationship forever. They're, they're, they're dead to me, right? They said, no, I'm out. I, that's not who we should be. He's talking to disciples in a specific situation. And so I think that a, a, more, a better analogy would be like if we went on a short-term trip to India. We share the gospel with people in a village. As we're going through the village, uh, there are going to be people that we would share the gospel with that wouldn't respond to it. And I think in that place, we could feel free to keep moving and to come home and not think, well, now I need to move here and move into next door to this person so that I can continually share the gospel with them so that one day they might believe it. Right? Those kind of relationships have to exist as we share the gospel. There are going to be times where we're not going to have a relationship with someone, but we're still called to share the gospel with them. And we need to feel free to do what he calls us to do and share the truth of the gospel and then move on to the next person. But there are other kinds of situations in which we're called to share the gospel, like with our neighbors, to where it's not a one-time thing, but it's an all-the-time thing. We're continually living the gospel in front of them and speaking the gospel to them and sharing the good news with them, not because you know, that's just what we do all the time, but because that's who we are. We want to be people for whom the gospel has saturated and permeated us so that it's coming out of us all the time. We're continually sharing it with those that we're in relationship with. So don't think that this frees us from doing that. We're still called to do that, even though there are times in which those are the kind of relationships we're going to have with them. Luke tells us they, they, they went out. Verse 6, they departed, went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And I think that when we see a verse like this, we have a tendency just to kind of read it and move on. Right? We've, we've gotten the details. Jesus sends them out. That's the important part. Now Luke is just saying they went and did it. But I think what we should see there is that Jesus told the disciples to do something and they did it. And so what, what we should see in verse 6 is not unimportant information. What we should see in verse 6 is a little rebuke from Luke to us saying, look, Jesus told them to do something and they did it. What are things that he's told us to do that we haven't done? Back in Jason's passage a few weeks ago, he said, why do, you, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? We should be people like the disciples in verse 6. Jesus tells us to do something. He just says, go and make disciples. We should be people who go and make disciples. We should do what Jesus says. I know that seems so obvious. 
but we spend a lot of our lives not doing what Jesus says. And so may we be people who read the word, who hear from him, and then do what he says, put it into practice. We don't need to hem and haw and debate about whether or not we should do what God's word tells us to do. We should just do it, even though it's hard, even though it's uncomfortable, even though we don't want to, even though we want to do our own thing, even though we're selfish. We should put that aside because Christ died for us, and he's empowered us to walk in obedience. At the men's book study on on Friday, we talked a lot about holiness and how uh, a lot of us have the tendency to kind of push off a call to holiness because it seems legalistic. You know, I don't, I don't want to, shouldn't have to read my Bible every day because that's legalism. And so I'm just not going to read it any day. Or I shouldn't pray all the time because, you know, that's just legalism. And so I'm not going to pray at all. I shouldn't have to go to church every week. And so I'm just not going to go at all. We, we are so afraid of being legalistic that we're not pursuing holiness. But the reality is that legalism is saying, I must do this thing to be saved. Holiness is saying, Christ has saved me, so I should be holy. So we should do what he's called us to do because he saved us. Not so that he will. He already has done it. Our goal is to respond to it and walk in obedience because that's what he calls us to do in his word. This next section, Herod is confused about who Jesus is. He he hears about what Jesus is doing. uh, And Luke tells us that some people said it's John raised from the dead, which like this doesn't even make sense. Jesus and John were born right around the same time. They were, they were alive at the same time. They were, they were contemporaries. It's not like John lived and died and then Jesus showed up. They were there together. And so John died. This, this, this is stupid. Like these, these people, they don't make, they don't make sense. Uh, other people say Elijah had appeared. Some say that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod says, right, he, Herod understands. John, I beheaded. That guy's dead. This isn't him. This is somebody else. Who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Uh, this is one of those places in the Gospels where I think, like, Luke, what are you doing? You know, you only have so much space. You've got all these stories about the things that Jesus did, about the things that Jesus said. Like, why not insert one of those here instead of this random thing about, like, Herod's confused about who Jesus is, right? Give us another miracle instead. Give us more of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't say, like, well, some people thought he was this, some people thought he was this. Herod was like, I don't know. And so I'm just like, why why is this here? And I think the reason why I feel that way is because to me, like, Herod Herod doesn't matter. Right? He's he's the bad guy in the story. And if we've read the Gospels before, we know that. And so when we hear this, like, Herod is confused, like, what's the big deal? Of course he's confused. He's going to kill Jesus in, like, ten pages. But Luke's not writing straight to us. He's writing to people who knew who Herod was. He's writing to Theophilus who who valued probably public prominent figures. So he's telling us that, you know, we saw in chapter 8 as as Jesus calms the storms, the disciples seeing that and they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The disciples are asking the questions, who is Jesus? And Luke is telling us with this passage that other people are asking that question too. It's not just his disciples. It's not just the Jewish religious leaders. These political figures are also asking that question. Who is this guy? He's doing things. I'm hearing about things that I don't understand. So who is 
this person. People are asking about who Jesus is. And he's going to tell us, uh, he's going to answer that question in the next passage next week uh, pretty definitively about who Jesus is. But I think what we should see here is just this reminder that if we are people like he calls us to be, Right? If we go out and we share the gospel and we do the kinds of things that Jesus called us to do, like the disciples do, people are going to hear about it and people are going to ask the question, who is Jesus? And we need to be a church that's out in the community doing those things so that we can be out in the community and answer those questions when they come up. There are people like Herod that want to know who is Jesus. We need to be people who are in relationship with those kinds of people so that we can tell them. That's who we're called to be. That's why I think Luke shoves this in here instead of something else. This next little chunk is the feeding of the 5,000. So the disciples have have gone out on their journey. They come back um, and we get to the feeding of the 5,000. And really, like if you listen when we read, it's it's 5,000 men. And so really, there's more than 5,000 people in here. In fact, D.A. Carson, who's writing on the, 5, and the feeding of 5,000 in the Gospel of Matthew, he says maybe it was 15 or 20,000 people, which is, which is a lot more than 5,000, right? We hear the feeding of 5,000, we think this is amazing. God fed this many people with this little food, but in reality, he fed three to four times that many people because there were also women and children present. They're just not counted in the number. So he feeds the 5,000. What's happening here is that the disciples have gone out and they've done the ministry that Jesus told them to do. They've come back and Jesus is, is wanting time with his disciples to help them process and kind of debrief the ministry they've done. And so he's taking the disciples away from the people, right? They, they withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. They're, they're, they're getting away from people. They want some alone time. They want some rest time. They don't want to be with everyone else. But what happens is that the crowds learn about what's happening, and they follow. And not just a small crowd, right? 15 to 20,000 people. So imagine that you're in a situation where, you know, you've just had an exhausting time of ministry. And you come back, and you want to spend time with just a handful of people to kind of process what's taken place. But instead of that handful of people, there's 15 to 20,000 people there. Right? I think even the most extroverted among us would have an issue with this. But look at how Jesus responds. When the crowds learned it, verse 11, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. He welcomed them. There's this huge interruption into his plans. He wanted to do something else. He needed to do something else. These people show up. He meets their needs instead. He's willing to do ministry even though he needs rest. I think that there needs to be a qualification here because some of us will hear that and think, I just need to do ministry all the time. I want to rest. I need rest. But, but Jesus wanted to rest, and he did ministry. And so that's who I should be. No rest, all ministry. But the reality is is that the reason why Jesus can do this is because he has an established pattern of rest in his life. He regularly, in the Gospels, withdraws to pray. And because he regularly does that, this one time that he wanted to do this and these other people showed up, he can change the pattern. It's a pattern of rest that in this one situation becomes work. 
we have patterns of work that occasionally becomes a time of rest. We need to be resting so that we're able to minister to people, so that occasionally we can break that pattern when people need us to. That's what we see Jesus doing here. He speaks to them about the kingdom of God. He cures those who had need of healing. He does exactly what he sent out the disciples to do. He's leading by example. He's teaching them what they're supposed to do by showing them uh, right in front of them. As they're doing this, as he's speaking about the kingdom of God, as he's healing people, uh, you know, because there's 15 to 20,000 people there, and so it takes a while to go through that crowd. Uh, the day begins to drag on. It gets towards nighttime, and the disciples come to Jesus, and they say, hey, you need to send these people away because we're in this desolate place, right? They wanted to be away from civilization, so they're out in the middle of nowhere, and all these people are there, and the disciples are saying they need food to eat. We're going to have to send them into the villages so they can get a place to stay and find food to eat. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. They say, right, we've got five loaves and two fish. So do you want us to go buy some food somewhere and bring it back? And Jesus uh, says, have them sit down in groups about 50 each. Again, 15 to 20,000 people. Have them sit down in groups about 50 each. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Jesus takes five loaves of bread, two fish, pass it out to 12 guys who pass it out to 15 to 20,000 people. And then they pick up 12 baskets of broken pieces. They pick up more than they started with after everybody has eaten all that they want to eat. Jesus provides more than enough. And this miracle should wow us. Right? We should look at this and say, this is incredible. Jesus just fed fifteen to 20,000 people with five pieces of bread and two fish. But we hear that and we think, yeah, it's the feeding of 5,000. I've heard, I've heard it before. I've, I've read it before. I, I, I know about this. And so on the one hand, I think we should see this as, as an evidence of grace. Right? It's... it's a good thing that we're familiar with this passage because it shows the grace of God on our lives and in our lives that we know things about his word. We know this story of who Jesus is. There are people in our city that haven't heard this story. But we're not those people and that's evidence of God's grace on us. But I think it should also be convicting to us that this doesn't wow us. Because we should be amazed at the things that God does in his word. It should cause us to worship. It should fill us with praise. It should fill us with awe and wonder at who our God is that feeds all of these people with so little. Think that thinking about this passage and as we, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, The feeding of the 5,000 isn't the Lord's Supper. But it's a situation in which God provides for his people. He provides them with what they need. And that's exactly what the Lord's Supper represents. Christ 
on the cross, allowed his body to be broken for us and for our sin. He allowed his blood to be shed on our behalf. He died in our place. And the Lord's Supper is a weekly reminder of that provision that's been made for us. And one thing that's great about the Lord's Supper is that every Sunday after we take the Lord's Supper, if you look up here, there are still cups and crackers on the table. Sometimes you'll see a little kid just... But the point is there's, there, there's, there's more provision here. There, there's, there's more grace for people that aren't here. There is still room around the table for more of us. I think that we, last week, you know, Daniel encouraged us to picture somebody you know, in, in need of Christ. This week, as you take the Lord's Supper, I want you to think about someone that you're sharing the gospel with. Your neighbor, your, a family member, a coworker, some person that you interact with at the store, like someone. One of these cups, one of these crackers could be for them. God has grace for them. One day, some of the people in our lives that we are sharing the gospel with will celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. Because God is mighty to save. He is able and he longs to redeem his people. The word tells the story of how much he's gone to, the lengths he's gone to to save us. Why would we think that he's only done that for the people that are in this room? Why would we think that there's not enough grace for the people that we're sharing the gospel with? Know that there is more grace. His grace is sufficient not just for us, but for all of the people that we're sharing the gospel with. And so as you're preparing to take the Lord's Supper, remind yourself that when Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians, he, he says that we do it, and as we do it, we proclaim his death until it returns. It's not until he returns. It's not just for us. It's not just so that we can remind ourselves of what he's done. It's so that we can remind ourselves that he's done it for other people too. And we're called to proclaim that so that they might be saved, so they might hear and believe the gospel. So take some time, prepare your hearts, ask the Spirit to bring to mind people that God wants you to share the gospel with this week. Ask God to save those people so that in the future they might celebrate this with us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that, that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a church, that we don't, we don't partake of all the grace there is. But that your grace is, is more than enough for us. And that there is room around your table for others. How we pray that seeing this miracle in the Gospels, as you provide food for an insane amount of people with a, a smallest amount that we would know and believe that you are a God that does amazing things. That if you've, you've saved us, you can save others. We pray that that would motivate us 
to go out like the disciples go out in this passage. That we would proclaim the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. The good news that you have brought your kingdom. And that others would hear and believe and find salvation in you. That they would become participants alongside us and partakers of the same grace. And that we would know that even if you save everyone we're reaching out to, there's still room around your table. So we pray that you would cause us to ask for the kind of empowerment that you gave the disciples. And that like them, you would cause us to walk in obedience to your word.